Holy Spirit will have His will. And Lord, help us to love You more each and every day. And Lord, sometimes it seems like the way gets long and the road gets weary. And oftentimes we uh, don't uh, rejoice. We don't let our hearts um, overflow with our love for You. And I pray that You would help as we start out a brand new year to uh, ease the weariness of the road and the toil ahead and that You would... uh, Allow us to love you more each and every day of our lives, to draw closer to you and to become more of what we should be. Bless the teaching and the preaching of your word today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, Failed to mention uh, Brother Dan and Miss Carmen. I did mention them Wednesday night, but uh, Brother Dan did say that Miss Carmen's uh, recovery is going to be a lot longer, it seems like, than they were initially hoping for. So keep her in prayer too, and I, I did fail to mention that, and I apologize and uh, then also I heard from Brother Tully uh, this week, and uh, he has uh, done some teaching, tried to stay kind of close to home here lately, and has had some health issues as well. So uh, continue to pray for Brother Tully, and uh, I hope uh, we had had him scheduled to come to the men's conference uh, here several months ago, and he wasn't able to do it because of some sickness. And I told him we'd try to have him here around Christmas or so, and so uh, maybe here in the next several weeks we'll have him here for a weekend if he can get away and uh, get you some nice, some good preaching. Yes, sir. Yes. Yes. Yeah, and I should have mentioned that uh, several weeks ago. He's been going through a lot of health issues here recently, so uh, keep him in prayer. Yes, ma'am. Okay. Okay, and this is her sister, right? Okay, yes. So pray for that. Okay, all right. Well, I feel bad that we mentioned that after we had opened in prayer, but I did want to make sure that we didn't forget them and that we'll put them on our prayer list. And uh, so let's keep these folks in prayer as well. All right, Psalm four, if you will. All right, Psalm fourteen, excuse me, Psalm fourteen. And uh, Lord willing, I'll be talking to the doctor again tomorrow. Hopefully, getting some more answers of some of the conditions of whatever I'm dealing with. And I appreciate so many of you praying and your encouragement. And uh, God has provided some relief in some areas, but other areas still need some help in. So we're going <coughs> to see if we can find out what's going on. All right, Psalm 14. We started this one last week. We got about halfway through it. Uh, this one's written to the chief musician. It's written by David himself. It specifically is attributed to him. And uh, 53 of the psalms that we have in our Bible uh, were written to the chief musician, whose responsibility was to lead in public worship uh, in the tabernacle, and then later on when Solomon built the temple, um, to uh, lead the worship in the temple. (coughs) And it was made for a group. It was made for uh, a large group of folks to sing in public worship. And now there are some psalms that were intended to be used individually as almost a prayer or a song of the heart to the Lord. Uh, This one was made more for congregational singing. Um, It was addressed to the Most High uh, and was intended for public worship. Uh, We find out that, uh, or we spent some time last week dealing with the subject that, uh, contrary to what some people think in modern day about music, religious music especially, or or Christian music, it has more to do with than just praise. Uh, for some reason, we've gotten it in our minds that songs today should only be songs of praise, and we call it praise and worship. Uh, a lot of people use that, those terms. 
Um, and yet the, the Scriptures teach us that we're to teach and we are to admonish one another in psalms, in hymns, and spiritual songs. And so psalms should also have, and hymns should also have, um, issues of doctrine in them. They ought to be theologically correct. Uh, they ought to be things that would admonish us and exhort us, things that sometimes would instruct us perhaps even in biblical truth. Um, and it's not only for the sake of uh, worship alone. And it's very important that we in this generation learn that because if we don't learn that, we miss out on so much of what uh, good music, godly music, should be. Uh, it ought to be doctrinally sound. It ought to teach doctrine. It ought to reinforce that in our hearts. Uh, it ought to admonish us. It ought to encourage us. And uh, Paul spoke of that in Colossians chapter 3 when he said, uh, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Um, and so we find that this psalm is one of those types of psalms. It's, it's not strictly a praise psalm. In fact, David um, kind of uh, gives a complaint here. And in a lot of uh, the psalms, it's him pouring his heart out about how he feels about a subject and then coming back around and saying, but God, I know that you're in control of it, and I rejoice in that, and I look forward to your deliverance from these, these things. And so we find this is another psalm very similar to this. There's another psalm almost identical to this one, and that is Psalm 53. Uh, psalm 53 uh, is kind of a, uh, a parallel psalm to this Psalm 14. If you want to write uh, 53 up there in your Bible next to Psalm 14, so you'll know next time you read through, that you can take both of those psalms and look at them together and they kind of supplement and reinforce each other. They're kind of mirror images of one another. And uh, we spent some time dealing with um, the fool has said in his heart there is no God from verse number 1. And the fact that he does not become a fool because he declares that there is no God, but rather the other way around. Uh, he declares that there is no God because he is foolish by nature. And uh, there's, there's a foolishness in him that wants to deny God. Now, uh, even though it says that he has said in his heart there is no God, um, you'll find it, if you talk to very many people that are self-proclaimed atheists or agnostics, you'll find that in the most cases, uh, it's not that they truly believe that there's no God. They just deny that there is uh, outwardly. And um, I, was, I, was, I was listening to some things the other day, and I came across... Uh, let's see if I've got it here uh, in my notes. I think I put it in my notes here. Yeah, there was a, a fellow by the name of Jordan Peterson. Some people know who he is. He's a, a clinical psychologist, uh, and and some people he, he talks about God. And um, if, if from everything I have ever heard him talk about, uh, I do not think he's saved. Uh, in fact, I'm quite certain of that. Uh, but for years, he he would not make any claim to God, and here in these latter years, he's kind of made some claim to him with the caveat of some things he puts into it, and I do not believe he's saved uh, by any stretch of the imagination, but early on in his life, he was more of an atheist, or, or at least would not proclaim that there was a, cri a Christ or a God, and uh, when he was asked if God exists, he said this, he said, I don't like the question, and for many years, that was his answer to it. Uh, I don't like the question. He said, I don't know exactly. But he said, if there is, I, he said, I've learned to live as if there is a God. But if there is, I'm terrified. And the reason for that is men do not want to admit that there is a moral authority 
that they have to they have to submit to, that they have to fall in line with. They they justify their wicked behavior that comes from a heart of foolishness that outwardly will deny God because uh, they want to soothe their conscience in the way that they live. And we're living in a day where the vast majority of people who deny that there is a God are foolish by nature. And they deny there's a God because they're trying to soothe their conscience and trying to justify that they can do that which is right in their own eyes and not have to answer to a holy God. And uh, it's sad that, that we're in that day and age, but we're at that point where so many people deny that there is a God, not because they truly believe it. In fact, the Bible teaches us that it's, it's, in, it's part of our innate nature when we're born to seek for God. Uh, the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament showeth his hand. With creation itself speaks to the existence of God. And if man denies God, it, he does so contrary to all the evidence of his senses, all the natural inclinations that he's born with. And he does so because he wants to justify his wrongdoing, his rebellion to the, the, to the things of God, to the moral law of God. And so this fool has said in his heart, the Bible says, that there is no God. We spent some time on that last week. Uh, to these men, these folks that deny God, there is no moral absolute. Uh, every man does that which was right in their own eyes. This was the condition <coughs> of the world before the flood. And uh, God decided to destroy the earth because of that type of an attitude. In verse 2, we spent some time looking about the fact that God looks down from heaven upon the children of man. And God sees it all. God sees it all. Sad to say, even Christian people who live carnally, uh, they, I, and I asked this question last, last week, is it possible to outwardly proclaim that there is a God and that we believe in God, but in our actions we deny Him? And the truth of the matter is, that's, that's often the case. We make an outward profession, but inwardly, uh, we live and we deny that God sees it. In fact, every time we choose willingly to sin, which is the vast majority of the time, there are very few sins that are sins of ignorance. We, we plunge headlong into them. We make definitive decisions, I'm going to do this. Every time we do that, even though in our minds and in our hearts maybe, even we believe that there is a God, we deny Him. We don't believe that he sees. And the psalmist is trying to bring this to bear in, in verse 2. as He says, The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. <coughs> he, sees, <coughs> he sees everything. He does not blindly punish or bring his justice to bear against wickedness. He makes sure that there is a reason for that. Sodom, of course, is one of the, the biblical examples that has been given of God making certain that it was deserved before he destroyed it. In fact, he was willing to save Sodom uh, for just a handful of righteous people and that he would not have consumed the righteous along with the ungodly. And he made a way of escape for Lot and his daughters and his wife. And uh, God is a very just God, a very fair God. For the world to say that God is not fair in his justice to them is, is not a true statement. God has been more than long-suffering. God has been more than merciful. And for a man to deny this, uh, it would make him a fool. He's a fool for saying such things. 
at verse 3, it says they are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. You have three negatives in this verse all together. And it's, it's like God is emphasizing this <coughs> when he says there is none, none. And by the way, in the Hebrew and in the Greek and in Latin or whatever verse you want to do, that means none. Uh, there is none that doeth good, and look at this, no, not one. Not one, lest you think you're it. <laughs> you're, you're mistaken. Lest I think I'm it, I'm mistaken. There's none that doeth good, no, not one. We all deserve the punishment and the justice of God. It's important for us to understand that. If we're saved today and we've trusted God as our Savior, we had to come to a place where we understood that we were guilty under God's law. We had offended. We had done that which was wrong according to His moral standard. <clears throat> As Romans 3 said, we've fallen short. We've all come short of the glory of God. And uh, we find here that um, one of the reasons we do not see our own sin more clearly is because we have become too accustomed to it. We've become too accustomed to it. Uh, for God's people to continue or still have sin in their lives. I think if I were to go around the room, we could all agree to this, I believe. I don't think there's anybody here that would disagree with this. If you do, that's fine. We'll just disagree on it. But I know in my short lifetime, and mine, it's getting longer and longer all the time, but my, my lifetime's been shorter than many of you that are here today. In my short lifetime, I have watched things that when I was a kid we considered to be morally wrong, that nowadays are openly done even in churches with no conscience about it at all, as if to say there is nothing wrong with this. Why? Because we've become accustomed to the sin. We used the passage uh, about Lot last week out of, uh, I believe it was 2 Peter chapter 2, that spoke about the fact that uh, just Lot vexed his righteous soul uh, by seeing and hearing the wickedness of Sodom day by day. And he, he grew accustomed to it. The wickedness of Sodom wasn't as wicked as it was when he used to be out there uh, with Abraham on the plains. And as he got into Sodom and he began to see and hear their wickedness day by day, he became accustomed to it and it lost its sinfulness. If there's one thing we as God's people must learn to do, we must learn to make sure that we keep our eyes open to the wickedness, the ungodliness, the horrendousness of our sin. Uh, sin is black. It's, it's sin, is a, sin is a horrible uh, thing that God doesn't wink at. God doesn't sit there and say, well, it's okay, we'll let this one slide. It's something that he detests, he abhors. It's something that cost him the life of his own son. It's something that caused him to have to come and suffer and for him to take the sin of mankind upon his own being, his own holy self. It's one of the hardest things I think the Lord Jesus had to do. To suffer that punishment, that, that penalty for our sin in our place. Folks, sin is not something to be trifled with. It's not something that we can just brush under the carpet. But sin is very sinful. And he makes that known by saying there is none that doeth good. No, not one. And it should make us all the more grateful 
for what God has done for us. Because were it not for the grace of God, we would be undone in this depraved condition. But because of the grace of God, God has given us the righteousness, the perfection of the Lord Jesus Christ on our account. We should not abuse that. I know people have said, well, I'm saved and the Lord has given me His righteousness and the Lord has forgiven me of my sins, He's given me a home in heaven for all of eternity, and so it doesn't matter how I live now. God forbid that we should have that kind of a mentality. After all that the Lord has done for us, there ought to be such a heart of gratitude, a heart of love, a, a heart of the fact that we can never, ever repay Him for all that He's done for us. There ought to be a desire in our hearts to do everything we can to bring joy and pleasure, pleasure to His eyes and to His heart in the way that we live. To be well-pleasing unto the Lord, to be acceptable unto the Lord in our lives, in, in the way that we live today. For us then to take this grace that has been so freely bestowed on us and to abuse it to the sense of living after self in our old flesh nature is to deny God. Even as a Christian, it's to deny God in our actions. The psalmist says that that's a fool. That's a fool. Verse five is uh, verse four is where we uh, ended last week. Those that were known as workers of iniquity uh, have no knowledge. They eat up my people as they eat bread, and uh, and call not upon the Lord. And we made this statement last week that when they get to the place where they deny God, and um, in fact the psalmist refers to them as workers of iniquity, as if they're uh, they're servants to it. They're there, one one writer uh, wrote about this particular verse that there seems to be almost the idea of bondage to their iniquity. They can't get away from it. They can't escape it. It's part of who they are. And he talks about how hard of a life this is. But this corruption and lack of acknowledging God is the motivating factor uh, to persecute those that are righteous. And you'll notice that those that deny God the loudest and the greatest with their lives are usually the ones who bring the most persecution and abuse towards those that try to live righteously. Notice what he says here in verse number 4. He says, "...who eat up my people as they eat bread and call not upon the Lord." They attack, they provoke, they accuse. They do everything that they can to bring down the wicked by persecuting them. They don't like the fact that there are people out here that not only claim that there is a God, but determine in their lives that they're going to live by His moral law. It makes their guilt and their conscience all the more pronounced in their own lives. And they hate that. We're living in a world, and I hope we understand this today, <coughs> we live in a world that that doesn't just have the mindset, well, you do what you want to do and I'll do what I want to do and we'll just leave each other alone. We live in a world that because we try to follow after the things of the Lord, they hate us. They're going to do all they can to destroy us. It's amazing how down through history, God's people have been lulled to complacency and thinking that there's some way that we can join hand in hand or live peaceably among uh, the, the things of this world without there being any conflict, without there being any persecution going on. 
I think we ought to live kindly. We ought to treat each other kindly. But there is a world out there that hates us, is bent on destroying us. Satan is not, the Bible says, as a roaring lion walking to and fro seeking whom he may hurt or seeking whom he may inconvenience or seeking whom he can bring difficulties into our lives. He's seeking whom he may what? Devour. That's his goal. That's his desire. And he does this and accomplishes this through people who deny the existence of God. They eat them up. They, they, they come after God's people. Look at the violence and the hatred that this world has towards anything that is morally right according to God's Word. <coughs> people that are beaten, people that are arrested, people that are thrown in prison, people that are murdered and martyred for the cause of Christ. And yes, that's going on in present day. Last year, there were 90,000 martyrs for the Lord Jesus across this world. And that's with conservative numbers. Some of them have it as high as 120,000 that were martyred for the cause of Christ because they would not deny their Savior. And it's because there is a movement of unsaved people who willingly choose to deny God's existence, whose sole purpose it is to destroy those that live righteously. Verse 6, let's go to verse 5, I'm sorry, verse number 5. <clears throat> the Bible says this, I want you to notice the first word in verse 5, because I think it's key to this verse. It says, there were they in great fear. Now, where is there? Where is there? There is the point that they've gotten to. Uh, there is the place where they are right now in denying God. So at the point where the depravity of their nature has gotten so great and the uh, the wicked deeds that are produced by that denial are at their highest zenith. It is at this point there, it's at that point, that they, uh, they are in great fear, for God is in the generation of the righteous. And it, it, it reminds me of that statement that uh, Jordan Peterson made. He said, I live as if there is a God, but if there is, I am terrified. Why? Why would they be terrified? Why would there be a fear in them if they're living blatantly and with arrogance and saying there is no God? Because the possibility that there is weighs very heavy upon their hearts. And there is a fear. If God's moral justice does exist, then there are people that are going to give an account and be punished with punishment that is far greater than they ever want to even imagine. God's justice and His wrath upon the wickedness of their sin is going to continue to rain down. And it brings great fear to them. And it's at this point, it's at this place where they get to where they deny God. They say, I, I believe there is no God. There, there were they in great fear. For God is in the generation of the righteous. God is in the generation of the righteous. If God exists, we as God's people have great hope and great peace. That's what we love about our salvation. It gives us great hope, great peace, something we can rest in, something we can trust. I was talking to my mother the other day and talking about some of the things that are going on in this world. And it's rapidly uh, fulfilling things that we see coming in the book of Revelation. And I said, it's, it's, uh, it's exciting for God's people. 
We're disappointed in it because we don't want to see the world go this way. We're heartbroken for it because we know that the wrath of God is going to be poured out on those that don't trust Him as their Savior. And those are things that motivate us to try to do what we can to reach people with the gospel before He comes back. But I said, we don't sit here and and bite our nails and fret and worry like those that are lost do during this time. Because God is with the righteous, it brings great hope and great peace. But you've got to understand, for those that don't know that He exists, those that deny in their hearts that He exists, they don't have that hope. and They don't have that peace. And for them, it brings great fear to their heart. Because the possibility is this, that if He does exist, we're in big trouble. We have to suffer His wrath. We have to suffer His judgment. And so these people that are at this point, there's a great fear in them. They may live arrogantly. They may live loudly and boldly. They may do what they can to persecute. I'm reminded of the story of that Spirit-filled deacon Stephen in the Scriptures in the book of Acts. And when he began to preach, the Holy Spirit pricked the hearts. Why? Because God is with the righteous. And He pricked their hearts. And what was their reaction to that? By the way, all of us have a choice how we react to the pricking of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. We can either yield ourselves to it and say, Lord, I know there's something there I need to deal with. And I don't like the conviction that's there, but I want to yield myself to it because it's necessary for me to become what you want me to. And so we yield ourselves to that convicting or we reject it. And these people that heard Stephen preach in the book of Acts rejected In fact, the Bible says that they stopped their ears. They put, put their hands over their ears. They didn't want to hear it. Every once in a while, joking with my kids, if they're telling me something that I don't want to hear, I'll do like they used to do when they were little babies. They'll go like, la, 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 I'm not listening. And that was kind of the idea that these people were, they did not want to hear it. The Bible says that they rushed upon him. And there was what? What what happened? Did they put their arms around him and embrace him and love him? What did they do? They stoned him, didn't they? And the Bible says they even gnashed on him with their teeth. There was violence. There was hatred. There was animosity. They could not stand what, what, what Stephen was saying. And they were in great fear. For God is in the generation of the righteous. Verse number 6 you have shamed the counsel of the poor because the Lord is His refuge. Though they're actual fools, they do everything they can to portray themselves as wise. And so they try to shame the counsel of the poor. They try to shame those that take the Lord as their refuge. They try to make it look as if they're the ones that are the wise ones and they're the, the, the Christians, those that would uh, run to the Lord for refuge. Um, are the, are the foolish ones. And we see that all around the world today, don't we? We see men that have uh, college degrees uh, lined up past their name and their titles. They get up on national televisions and they talk about the foolishness of people who have faith in God, who have faith in this book. And they ask questions such as, what can your God do for you now? 
If there's evil in the world, how can a holy God do these things? Who is that God that can deliver us, deliver you out of our hand? And by the way, we've seen that in the Old Testament over and over again, that, that play out, that mindset that I'm going to do this and God won't deliver you. We saw it in the three Hebrew boys. We saw it in Daniel in the lion's den. And by the way, that mentality is in the world today. Then they ask, well, where is the reward of all your praying and beseeching? You pray and God doesn't seem to always answer what you ask Him for. They'll say, well, you've said He's coming. Where's He at? And the Bible tells us that that's going to happen in the end times. They're going to say, you've been saying that the promise of His coming has been from the time of the fathers. And now they're asleep and where is He? He hasn't come yet. The danger that these people provide to you and I as as believers, as Christians, is that there are sometimes even Christian folks will be shaken in their confidence because of the consistent and the continual bombardment of these fools who question the existence of God. I've had people come to me and say, Pastor... I was watching this documentary on TV about, and they'll pull some subject of the Bible that they've done a documentary on. Can I tell you this? Do not establish your faith on something you see on television. Neither let your faith be shaken by what you see on television. That's not our authority. Be careful of these things. You'll get men, well, these guys, they're doctors and they've studied and they know and they've learned. They're fools, according to the psalmist. They want to try to explain away the supernatural power of Almighty God and His workings of men throughout the history of the mankind. And they're fools. They try to deny Him. We must learn to be resolved, be steadfast in our faith. And then he ends it with the prayer. He starts with that expression, oh, 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 Lord, there's such a need. There's a groaning here. There's a thirst. There's a hungering for this truth to be done. Oh, that the salvation of Israel were come out of Zion when the Lord bringeth back the captivity of his people. Jacob shall rejoice and Israel shall be glad. And can I tell you this? The Bible teaches us that this whole earth is groaning. For the day that the Lord's going to return. All of creation groans. And I don't know about you, but they're getting more and more in my life to where it's almost a groaning. Lord, how long? How long? Oftentimes, as we see in the Psalms, there's a prayer of expectancy. There's a prayer of absolute faith and trust that God said it. I know it's going to happen. Lord, just how long? We've said it before that oftentimes in these prayers there's a sense of spiritual impatience. Lord, I, I, you've, you've promised this. I, I believe it with all of my heart. I don't doubt it at all. But how long? We look for Him to come a second time. To come without a sin offering unto salvation. Oh, that these weary years would have an end. Why tarries He so long? He knows that sins abound and that His people are downtrodden. Why does He not come to the rescue? Is the cry of the heart of many believers. Lord, how long? 
How long? We spent some time last week in Second Peter chapter 3, and I've taught that chapter before. Let's turn over there very quickly. We're going to read it, and I'm not going to reteach it or preach it this week, but Second Timothy or Second Peter chapter three. And he tells us why we're waiting. Second Timothy chapter three, verse number three, we mentioned it last Sunday, knowing this first that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lust and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. <coughs> For this, they are willingly ignorant. It means they're dumb on purpose. They, they choose to be ignorant of. For this, they are willingly ignorant of that by the Word of, the, of God, the heavens were of old. <coughs> The worth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. But the heavens and the earth which are now by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Why does God linger? Because He wants men to come to Him. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved what manner of persons ye ought to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hastening unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire being shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. I'm looking forward to the return of the Lord Jesus. I want Him to come. Even so, Lord, come. Revelation chapter 22, verse number 20. We find a prayer that I think ought to be on the lips of every single one of us. Revelation chapter 22, verse number 20, He which testifieth these things saith, Surely I come quickly. And John writes, Amen. When Jesus tells us, Surely I come quickly, it ought to be, Yes, Lord, even so, come Lord Jesus. As John says here, Lord, come. We're ready. Don't delay. And then there's a spiritual impatience that seems like oftentimes in our praying and in the prayer of this particular psalm. How long? How long? Until then, let's live the way we should. Let's be faithful and steadfast, unshaken in our faith. 